The only announcement that I am certain of is that we're going to have the men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning, and we will continue the study that we started in January when we started up, but we haven't met since then. And we will be looking at the um, at the videos for Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live?, looking at the de- degrading um, degradation of Western civilization, how it was built up by Christianity, and how it's been falling apart. And so that that will be good. There, It'll be good information, good basis for discussion. So that will be Saturday morning at 7.30 a.m. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are uh, spiritually prepared to study the word this evening and to uh, focus on it, and that God the Holy Spirit will enable us to understand the word and how it applies to our lives. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening just to get our minds off of the cares, concerns of the day, focus our attention upon you, the eternal rock that cannot be moved, and that we might come to understand more fully what is going on in the world around us, what goes on in the dynamics of our own spiritual life, that we may come to be more attentive and conscientious of of temptation and tests and how our soul, sin, nature, and the world system all seem to interact with one another. So, Father, open our eyes to these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in 2 Peter 2, uh, advancing. uh, We'll review a little bit, but we'll be in 19, verses 19, 20, and 21, just to kind of pull some things together looking at how we are really enslaved by our sin nature. A lot of talk today about slavery reparations. What are we going to do about reparations for our sin nature? Well, that was taken care of at the cross. So we're looking at these areas of enslavement. So we're in the last major section of chapter 2 from the second half of verse 10 down through verse 22, and we're looking at how arrogance is self-destructive in the area of the false teachers and how their their self-destruction has brought in those who are listening to and who are seduced and enticed by their false teaching. As I pointed out last time, as we get into these last five or six verses, it's very important to understand who the groups are that are involved in this epistle. And the first group is Peter, 
and those who are with Peter. In some cases, the we probably refers to we as the apostles, but he is the writer, and he is writing to an audience, and that audience is composed of believers. They are Jewish background believers, just as they were in the first, uh, first epistle. And he refers to them in the opening chapter as those who have obtained like precious faith with us by means of the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's clear he's writing to believers, but he's warning them that false teachers are going to come. And so that's the third group is these false teachers that are going to come, and they're the subject of chapter 2 who they are, and the certainty of their destruction. And they are viewed as unbelievers. Now, that doesn't mean all false teachers are unbelievers. He is viewing this group, though, as unbelievers, and that they are involved in uh, teaching their false doctrine to entice and seduce Christians away away from the truth. And so we have to watch these these pronouns, the these and those and they and we, all the way through to make sure we are understand the right people. And then there's a fourth group. We just got to this point last time that are mentioned in 2.18. And these are the ones, uh, it refers to those who have actually escaped. So who are those who have escaped? And then there are those at the end in verse uh, 18, those, um, um, verse 18 ends with, uh, we, they've actually escaped from those who live in error. Who are those who live in error? So those are the two groups uh, that we're concerned about. So we have the uh, following from verse 12 where it talks about these, meaning these men, these false teachers, they will be destroyed in their own corruption. Uh, the third person plural is referred to again in verse 15. Now you have it a couple of other times in English, but it's not in the Greek. That's why I'm not uh, circling the uh, they at the beginning of verse 15, but only as it's inserted there in the middle of the verse. They have gone astray. And then verse 17 picks up with the these again as we have in verse 12. So these two verses, 2.12 and 2.17, start with these, that third-person demonstrative plural pronoun, and it is referring to the false teachers. It's in the masculine, which indicates that they are male. The other thing that indicates that they are male is that their eyes are full of adulteresses in verse 14. So that would indicate that they're they're male. But he's not saying that they're all male. He's talking about what is going to happen uh, there. So he describes them in verse 17 as not having anything substantive to say. They have great oratory. They are entertaining They keep people focused because of the brilliance of their oratory. But the content is worthless. And so they are compared to wells without water and clouds that are just carried by a tempest, but there's no rain. 
sort of like the other night, I think it was Tuesday night with Bible class, there was rain, but the rain was up on the other end of Harris County, and this front line, which was kind of a dry line and a squall line, was coming through, and everybody thought it was going to rain, and it was really black, but there was no rain. And I would looked at the forecast uh, about 6 o'clock, and they were pointing out where this dry line was, and it was just a lot of wind. But it wasn't going to rain until later, and at my house, later is still waiting. So uh, that's what this is. It's they're talking about it has all of the appearance of something that will bring life-giving water, but it doesn't happen. And so throughout Scripture, we have Scripture, we have the spiritual life, we have the Holy Spirit, many uh, different things that are alluded to with reference to this imagery of water. And in this verse, we have the words, these and then whom, and then the plural of that relative all reinforce, we're talking about that same group, the false teachers. And the last part, it says, for whom, that is for these false teachers, is reserved. That's the word tereo, indicating that something has been established for them. It's in the uh, perfect uh, tense, which means that it's past completed action, just as in Matthew twenty-five forty-one, where we're told that uh, those who are at the sheep and the goat judgment, that the goats will be cast into the eternal fire, which has been perfect tense already created in time past, uh, already created for the devil and his angels. So that's what that is talking about, that this is already reserved. It's talking about eternal condemnation, and it is not talking about a blackness in the soul. It is talking about this black, deep, gloomy darkness of the netherworld, the place where the dead go. And so here we have uh, the Zophos, and it's also used in Second Peter 2.4, where it refers to the angels that sinned at the time of Noah, that they are confined in deep darkness. Jude 1.6 uses the same word. Actually, you not only have Second Peter 2.4, where they're delivered into chains of darkness, but in Second Peter 2.17, we have it used here. Then it's used in Jude 6 to refer again to those angels uh, who will be reserved or kept in everlasting chains under this deep darkness until or for the purpose of the judgment of that great day. So they're in a holding cell now that is described as uh, chains chains of great judge, great darkness. And Jude 13 uses that same term. So it's only used four times in the New Testament. And each time it refers to this this holding cell where the uh, angels who sinned in the past are kept and being kept there until the they are finally judged. And I assume that will be at the great white throne judgment or about that same time. I think you can't prove, I don't think I can prove this, but often when scripture is talking about someone, like we will talk about, well, 
you know that so-and-so did this today. We might talk about the President Biden did this today. Well, we know he didn't probably personally do that. He has his cabinet and he has all of the people who are in the administration who are the ones who carry that out. So, But we talk about someone like that. We may talk about a football team and just talk about the coach, but we're not excluding all of the coaching staff and all of the members of the football team. So when it says sometimes that Satan is doing something or Satan is cast into the abyss, I think it's not just Satan cast into the abyss, but it's all of the fallen angels. All of the demons are cast into the abyss so that there's no demonic involvement at all our influence on the human race during the millennium because part of the purpose of the millennium it appears is to demonstrate that the real problem is not satan not bad education not bad government because all of those things will be perfect but to show that the real problem is our own sin nature and that's what messes everything up so we've seen that that they're reserved for this eternal punishment And very similar language, I pointed this out last time, between Jude and Second Peter 2. And then just to review what I went over at first, we have to identify these people in these next couple of verses, because starting in verse 18 and 19, you have most commentaries talking about how this describes, all of these people described here are unbelievers rather than that believers are brought into it at that time. So that's why I'm uh, belaboring this a little bit so that we understand how to follow the, as it were, follow the little bouncing ball. The little bouncing ball is bouncing on those plural pronouns. We come to that last section. I revised this slide. I think it makes better sense here. I didn't fix the first one. Um, So we're asking, who are the ones who escape Are they believers or are they unbelievers? And the verse says, for if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. Um, Verse 18 is where it first introduced the ones who have actually escaped. Who are they? from those who live in error. Who are they? So that's about where we ended last time, and I'm going to develop that a little more. But by way of review in verse 18, we're told that by the first word for, this is an explanation about these false teachers, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness... They entice. That's the way the verb should be. It is a very strong, dramatic word. They are setting a trap. They're baiting the hook. They're making it their false teaching look as as, uh, intellectual as possible, as attractive as possible, as beneficial as possible, and they are decorating it in all kinds of things that appeal to the debauchery of our sin nature. And this is like what I pointed out before happened in the Old Testament, 
with the ancient fertility religions that they didn't go up to the temples just to sacrifice an animal. They went up there to spend a lot of time with the priests and priestesses who were really prostitutes. So we have uh, that enticement, and it is an enticement that uh, they, they seduce. And so we have to clarify the pronouns. That's what I've tried to do with this slide. For when they, that is the false teachers, speak these great swelling words or boastful words, arrogant words of emptiness that sounds wonderful, it is great oratory, they're very entertaining, but there's nothing to it. We can think of a number of examples of that kind of thing. Just turn on the TV or go to some of the mega churches that we have in Houston and you'll find a lot of examples like this. They may not be baiting the hook with the debauchery, but they'll be baiting the hook with the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel or any number of these other things. So when they, the false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness, they seduce. It's still talking about the false teachers. They seduce, but whom are they seducing? That's going to be uh, number two. That's the audience, the believers. They're trying to seduce these believers that Peter is writing to. They seduce through the lusts of the flesh, through debauchery, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So this idea that, uh, that the word that's translated speak is the same word that's used for the speaking of Balaam's ass back a few verses earlier. So Peter's making a little subtle connection there. And their empty words, met matayotis, they're purposeless, they're just like a vacuum, but they have no, no real significance or meaning. So they're baiting the trap to seduce the weak, and these loud, this term is loud boasts of folly, speaking out arrogant words of vanity. These are just the way different versions have translated this. They're, it's attractive to people. You wonder how in the world can some of these people get so many people to listen to them? Some of these pastors get thousands and thousands and uh, hundreds of thousands watching all over the world. It's because they're not giving them any truth. They're giving them what they want to hear. It's really interesting. There's one very well-known, probably the largest ministry in town, and I have some friends that are not saved. They're Jewish. They're fairly bright. And she comes from a background of no no religion whatsoever, atheist background, had, really knows nothing about even Judaism. But she spent a lot of time studying, studying psychology over the years. And her comment with one of these guys is, all it, he, she said, I don't know anything about the Bible or Christianity, but I know a lot about psychology, and that's all it is. It's just motivational psychology, and that's it. It has nothing to do with Christianity or Judaism or anything else, which is pretty clear. If you get an unbeliever who can make it that clear, that's a lot better than a lot of uneducated Christians. And then her husband made the comment, well, there's nothing there that I could ever find offensive. There's nothing there that would upset me. And 
that's because he doesn't say anything that would offend anybody. It's, it, it, it could fit anybody. You don't have to uh, have any firm convictions. You're just going to make you feel good afterward. I remember in my first church, some uh, lady came up to me, and I was a young pastor, and I hadn't been there long, and she was trying to be helpful. And uh, a lot of the older people in that church really wanted someone like Norman Vincent Peale or Robert Schuller. The younger half of the congregation wanted a, a good Bible teacher. So it was a, there was a bit of a conflict there. But she said, she said, why can't you just be like Robert Schuller? He makes everybody just feel good all the time. We should feel good when we leave church. I said, you know, a lot of people listen to Jesus and they not only felt bad, but they reached for rocks to stone him because of what he said. She didn't know what to say to answer that. Now they appeal to the sin nature through, I've translated this debauchery. I think that's, that sort of summarizes all of what this word asogeia means. It has to do with unbridled lust. It just appeals to all of the prurient interests that a person could possibly have. And that's the bait in the trap. And then we get to our phrase, the ones who have actually escaped. Now, these are the target people. The ones who have actually escaped, they are the believers who are the target of, of the false teachers to try to get them away from the Bible teaching. So they have, and the, and the Greek word there that's translated, it actually, it can be translated actually or literally or truly, they have escaped. So that's a very strong statement to indicate that they are believers. They have actually escaped, and then that next phrase is from those who live in error. And this is the noun, plane. The verb is planao, which is used of a wandering star, the wandering part, over in the parallel passages in Jude. Jude uses the noun and the verb as well. This is the root from which we get our word planet, because in the ancient world, as they looked up at all of the stars and they would see the constellations and they would study the stars, they would see that there were certain stars that looked like stars that wandered and moved. They didn't stay in the same spot, and through the year they would change location. So they used this word to describe them as, as the wandering stars, and that became our word planet. And so it also has the connotation of being deceived to wander away from the truth. So that was part of its idiomatic use uh, in Greek. Now, when we look at this whole concept here, it, who are those who live in error? Those are unbelievers who are living in the world system. They're not believers. See, the ones who have escaped, they've escaped a group, but that group that they've escaped from is not the group of the false teachers. It's another broader group that are those who live in error. And for that, we have to understand that Satan is the one who is in control on this planet. And if you somehow forgot that over the last, 
uh, few months or years. Just read the newspaper and watch the evening news for a little while, and you'll rediscover that Satan is alive and well in planet Earth, as Hal Lindsey put it many years ago. And right now he's having a heyday in Israel. And I hope you're paying some attention to what's going on over there. I haven't looked at anything on the news today, but yesterday over 1,200 rockets were fired from Gaza into Tel Aviv. And they have been met by the uh, Iron Dome, which has been quite successful. Now, a couple of th- about three things you need to understand about the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome was developed about 10 or 12 years ago. It was done in cooperation with uh, a couple of U.S. Uh, corporations that the U.S. government uh, funded the, a lot of the work that, um, that was done in Israel, the development of Iron Dome. And whenever we fund things, people sometimes look at, um, at how much money we give in foreign aid and how much we give in foreign aid is such a minor part of the whole budget. It's really surprising. But what we give to Israel, and the way they vote on it in Congress is that they just put it all in one package. They, they don't, you vote country by country. The committee just puts it all in one package, and when it comes before Congress, it's either all or nothing. And that's why you'll have some people like um, um, that we have in some some conservative congressmen that we have that will always vote against foreign aid. So they get marked down by those who are grading them on their support for Israel or not because they look at that as, well, they're just... um, they're just not supporting supporting Israel. They just don't. They they if they had their druthers, there'd be no foreign aid except what goes to Israel. But they're just trying to make a point that we shouldn't be giving all this money to all these other countries. But when we do support Israel, whether it is in um, sales, for example, we'll give them a certain amount of money, and they have to spend eighty or it's either eighty or eighty five percent of that in the U.S. So it comes right back into the U.S. And in a lot of cases, like with the F-35s, and the F-16 was the same way, we will uh, sell this to Israel. Israel will take it, and they are Lockheed's uh, research and development team. And those F-16s or F-35s go over there, and they take them up, the Israelis take them apart, put them back together, make everything work better, keep a few things secret for themselves, then send it back to us, and Lockheed's got a better product than they originally sent sent to Israel. And that was the same thing with the F-16. So we have a tremendous relationship with the Israelis, and the money that we send to Israel should not be looked at as foreign aid, it is an investment because we get a tremendous return on that investment all the time. And so when you see those, those Iron Dome rockets going off, think, well, that's my tax dollars at work. And that's one of the few things they're doing that's, that's really done well. But it's been about six or seven years since they, there was a major problem down with Gaza. And so they've had that time to create a stockpile. 
but it is still a finite stockpile. And right now what's happening is Hamas has adopted the strategy of shooting as many rockets at one time as they can to try to overwhelm, overwhelm the system. And it's a finite system because they, 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 they have their limitations. But it is such a brilliant system because they're tracking. And you've got to remember a lot of these rockets, uh, uh, smaller ones, only have a range of 5 to 10 miles that you're not talking about huge distances when you're talking in Israel. I, I can't tell you exactly how far it is from the northern border of Gaza to Tel Aviv, but I'd be surprised if it was more than 20 miles. So you're not talking about a huge, huge distance, and those rockets travel at a fast rate of speed, and those computers lock onto it, and they run their calculations, and in just a split second, can pinpoint where that rocket will land. And if it's not going to land at an inhabited space or hit a building or something significant, then they ignore it. And, and that they, they may have already fired the Iron Dome rocket to take that one out, and then it will receive an order from the computer, not by humans aren't involved in this at all other than turn the computer on. And then it will be diverted to another rocket that may be going to hit something of, of significance. So it's, a, it's an incredible system. And their accuracy is somewhere higher than probably 95%. It's top secret. So that nobody's uh, told me what it is, but it's incredibly high. And so when they're, th- it doesn't hit, get everyone, but they're, they, they have to, uh, have to keep that back. So Satan is working overtime right now in the Middle East. There's also not only are, are they being attacked from Gaza, but the, the Arab, the Arab Israelis, uh, that's Arabs that live in Israel and have Israeli citizenship. And I think about 10% of the country is, uh, is, is Arab Israelis. And they're rioting all over the place, and they're attacking Jews on the street. So it is a much more intense battle and um, war. I don't know if they'll call it a war, but it's it's extremely serious right now. And uh, we don't get a full story at all uh, when we look at things. Somebody sent me a video today. It was up on ABC, and I can just imagine what they were probably saying about it, a whole huge building. Uh, looked like it might have been a residential building, just was blown up. The rockets hit right at the base, and it just collapsed and fell. It was just a brilliant surgical strike. But what the Israelis will do is they will fly in, they'll drop leaflets, they say, at such and such a time we're going to hit that building, and they'll warn them. Hamas will fill the building up with women and children to try to prevent the Israelis from hitting it. And so then what the news is, is Israelis take out all these women and children. But it's Hamas that's done that. So you really have to pay attention uh, to a lot of the details that are going on here. But that is because what we're seeing in these verses, Satan is the prince and the power of the air. He is the god of this age. So 2 Corinthians 4.4 says whose minds the God of this age has, blind, uh, has blinded. Now, that's an interesting term. Age and world are sometimes uh, interchanged, but when it focuses on age, 
And one of the um, one of the uh, a well-known verse where it says that we are not to be conformed to the world in Romans twelve two, it's age. It's not cosmos. It's ion, and it's talking about the spirit of the time. That's that's the idea when it uses that kind of a phrase, and that's what you have here. So the god of this age is Satan, and he has blinded unbelievers those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, I've always wondered about this because in Calvinism, you have to have the Holy Spirit regenerate a person before they can understand the gospel and then believe. Regeneration precedes faith, and they have to uh, be uh, under the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit, the irresistible call of the Holy Spirit, because they define total depravity as being completely blind to the gospel and being unable to even exercise positive volition. Well, if an unbeliever is unable to even exercise positive volition, why does Satan need to blind them? So apparently there's some ability there that they have uh, that is why Satan needs to blind them. In Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And in the context, sons of disobedience are unbelievers, Gentile unbelievers in this section, but that uh, includes Jewish unbelievers as well. In four different verses in we have here, we have the reference to the ruler of this world. 1 John 5.19 defines him as the wicked one. John 12.31, 14.30, and 16.11 all call Satan the ruler of this world. So he is now the ruler of this world. When Adam was created, he was to have dominion over the planet. He was to be the ruler of the planet in, as God's representative. But when he sinned, when Satan tempted him and Adam sinned, Satan usurped that rulership over the planet. So we are living in Satan's domain, and we can expect nothing but horrible things to happen because this is Satan's domain, but God oversees and restrains his evil. So his control over this domain is what is described uh, by the word worldly or world, and it is the Greek word cosmos, from which we get our word cosmetics, and this is the uh, so we call it the cosmic system. For, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer called it cosmos diabolicos, the uh, co- the cosmic system of Satan. I remember the first time I heard that term, and I had no idea what it meant. I was probably about fifteen years old, and there was this guy from Dallas Seminary who was doing his internship at Baraka Church, and his name was Charlie Clough, and he was teaching the adult Bible class between the first service and second service on Sunday mornings, and he was... um, and he was teaching all about cosmos diabolicos, and I had no idea what he was talking about. 
But I figured it out since then. And by the way, Charlie is doing better. He's still very, very fatigued. Those of you who've had COVID know exactly what that's talking about. He and Carol both had the uh, Regeneron infusion. So he said they're feeling a little better, but it's, it's slow and takes, takes some time. But it's appreciative of all the, all the prayers. So the thing that is summarized about our enemies uh, in the scripture are that the believer has three enemies. The first enemy is Satan. He is our arch enemy. And then we have the world. Satan, this is really talks about Satan's way of thinking. This incorporates all of the philosophies, all of the world religions, all of the ideologies that do not conform at all to divine viewpoint. And so there's literally thousands and thousands of counterfeit ideas, counterfeit religions, counterfeit philosophies, counterfeit ideologies, and that's the world system. And then we have our own sin nature that has a great affinity and attraction to the world system because the world system provides our sin nature with the rationalizations to justify sin. So these are the enemies. So we're just going to focus on the main idea here of the cosmic system because these are, um, these are the ones mentioned, those who live in error. That's all those who live in the cosmic system. So first of all, we have to recognize all human beings are fallen sinners. They are guilty of sin. They're born spiritually dead. They're born in rebellion against God. And so uh, they have to recognize that. We live in such a world. You're uh, married to a sinner, a horrible, depraved sinner whose heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. Your children are the same way. They have a heart that is deceitful and wicked above all things, but you may have figured that out already. And they have parents whose hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. And we live with people like that. And the only corrective to it is the Word of God and spiritual growth. Uh, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, we're told, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And then we have the great statement of the gospel in the Old Testament, And the Lord has laid on him, substitutionary atonement, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not some. Not limited atonement, but it's all. Second point, the cosmic system is an organized system of thinking that is in opposition to God. The Greek word cosmos has a root meaning of adornment, so that means attractiveness. It is, uh, has the idea of order or arrangement, so it's systematic, it is structured, it is attractive, and it sucks people in. It, it provides the uh, ideological framework for justifying taking the bait in the trap. So as, uh, as such, one meaning is the arrangement of human viewpoint thinking, pagan thinking, Satan's thinking, all of that is basically the same thing. These are synonyms. It's not human viewpoint 
is really Satan's viewpoint. And it's all in opposition to God's divine viewpoint. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I've mentioned already, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. John 16.11, because the ruler of this world is judged. And Ephesians 2.2, 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, this is the one who runs and rules over the unbelieving world. At the core of the devil's thinking are two attributes. Two attributes. The first is autonomy, and the second is, is antagonism. Autonomy means independence. Satan wanted to be independent of God. As John Bunyan put it into his mouth in Paradise Lost, I would rather uh, rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that is Satan's statement of his independence, his autonomy. It's all related to the creature saying, I want to do it my way. It's all about me. It's about my way, what I think is right, and letting me make the rules and not let God make the rules. Antagonism is that the, every world system is hostile to God, that it may be camouflaged, it may have nice sugar coating, it may have wonderful-looking icing, buttercream icing all over it, but inside it is just poison. It's toxic. And uh, it, they're hostile to the Word of God. They're hostile to divine viewpoint. They're hostile to Christians. And you ought to read some of the stuff that is coming down uh, right now, there is on the left side of the aisle, there's a group of secular Democrats who are pushing to have uh, Christians who they are calling Christian nationalists, those who believe in uh, nations. You can read this in the, about the fourth or fifth page from the back in the current Israel My Glory magazine. They have a one-page article on this, and they are seeking to have Congress uh, strip Christian nationalists for all of their uh, constitutional rights because we are we can't be good patriots because we worship God instead of the state. So this is where things are heading. Now they're not going to get very far yet, but things can change so rapidly as we've seen in the last couple of years. There's just this antagonism. And I ran across a great illustration of this kind of antagonism. There's literally hundreds of these illustrations I could have used, but this is from uh, 1685 in Scotland. And this was in the middle of a period in Scotland just absolutely horrific for the Scots. It was a lengthy period of time from 1660 to 1688 that they called the killing time. It was a time when King Charles II, after Cromwell had died, Oliver Cromwell had died, his son really couldn't lead, and so the Parliament recalled uh, Charles II to back to the throne. And he was virulently hostile to the 
especially the Presbyterian Puritans. You have different groups of Puritans. You had Separatist Puritans and Congregational Puritans and Presbyterian Puritans. And in the north in Scotland, now remember, Charles II's grandfather was James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England, the one who authorized the King James Bible. And Scotland was, when Scotland came, took hold of the Reformation, what they did was they firmly held to Presbyterian form of government as was set forth by John Knox, who was the great Scottish reformer who uh, walked up and down the hills and valleys of uh, Scotland calling the Queen the Great Whore of Scotland, and she was. And uh, that's a different story. And anyway, so Scotland is committed. Back then, people took their doctrine seriously. They were committed to Presbyterianism. And in England, initially, well, under under Elizabeth, they had developed a, the Anglican or Episcopal form of government where you had a hierarchy outside the congregations all the way up to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and so uh, once you shifted to the Puritan control, they, they were originally Presbyterian, but under Cromwell they went Congregationalist. And when Charles II comes, comes back, he is bound and determined to force at the point of the sword every Scot and every Englishman to be a, an, an Episcopalian Anglican. And so they are... It, he's also the king of Scotland, and so he's going through Scotland, and they are arresting and uh, killing, murdering hundreds and hundreds of, of Christians. And so at this particular time, there were uh, two daughters of a fairly well-to-do uh, farming family. Their name was Wilson, Margaret Wilson, and uh, her sister, and uh, she had a, also had a 16-year-old brother and a 13-year-old sister who was Agnes. Well, Agnes and Margaret were arrested because of uh, the fact that they did not uh, swear allegiance to King Charles as the head of the church. And they said, Charles is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we will not submit to this. And so they arrested them, and they find find the parents. The parents had signed an oath of loyalty to Charles, but neither Margaret nor Agnes would do that. They were able to get away, and they lived up in the hills and mountains for a while with other Christians. But then in 1685, they went into a town called Wicktown to visit some friends, and they were spotted and they were uh, arrested. When they were brought before the magistrates, they were sentenced to be tied to posts in the Solway. Now, the Solway was an inlet on the Irish Sea there on the coast, and when the tide went out, they had these posts that were planted deep into the uh, in, into the bottom of the sea, and they would tie them there, and then when the tide came in, it would drown them. And so they tied, they, they let Agnes go because of her young age at 13, and they tied, um, uh, they, they tied Margaret up with a 63-year-old woman named Margaret McLaughlin. 
And as the waters were coming up and rising on them, Margaret would sing from the Psalter. She read from, she sang from Psalm 25, let not the errors of my youth nor sins remembered be. In mercy for thy goodness sake, O Lord, remember me. The Lord is good and gracious. He upright is also. He therefore sinners will instruct in ways that they should go. And before the waters finally rose over her head, she was heard to be reciting from Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then the waters went over her head. You read these stories. As you know, I've been teaching through church history on Monday nights, and I've been reading story after story of these Christian martyrs through the Reformation and the suffering that they endured because they stood their ground for Christ. And I wonder how many believers today care enough and are committed enough to what they believe in the truth of Scripture to stand against uh, the forces of evil, no matter what pain, physical pain and suffering it may cost them. But it is such an encouragement, I think, uh, to read these stories. And that is the antagonism of the world, that world hates Christians. The world system despises them. They've been covering it up for a long time and camouflaging it, but now it's coming out. The fourth point is, Thus the thinking of the world is juxtaposed in Scripture to the thinking of God. We have God's thinking represented as divine viewpoint and man's thinking as human viewpoint or worldliness or even satanic thought. And so we have to choose moment by moment, day by day, are we going to follow the Word of God or are we going to be sucked into the enticing, attractive bait in the trap and go the way of Satan. Now, under point five, we have to recognize, even though Peter is not talking about this so much, that both unbelievers and believers can promote cosmic thinking. Believers who are not well trained in the Scripture uh, can spout off all kinds of things they think the Bible says, and it's not true, or they may be going to one of these um, um, generic mega churches where they're hearing nothing but psychology and they're a believer but they're just hearing a lot of stuff that has nothing to do whatever with the bible just arrogant boasting of empty words as peter put it so romans 12:2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world and that's not cosmos it's the word i talked about earlier ion it means the zeitgeist the spirit of the age We are not to be conformed to it. We are not to be sucked into all of the uh, pseudo-emotionalism and guilt trips uh, that is being put out by the uh, Marxist anti-American Black Lives Matter. We can't succumb to the propaganda. 
We have to read, we have to study, we have to think so that we can identify what the truth is, and it's getting harder and harder to do that today. But we have to have the truth and not get sucked into the propaganda that comes across on the news. So we're not to be conformed or pressed into the mold of the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. We have to overhaul our thinking. We have to think biblically. The issue isn't white, black, brown, Asian, American. It is what do we believe as Christians? How should we behave as those who are in the body of Christ? And that is our standard. The sixth point, sin and the sin nature will produce cosmic thinking. When you get people who are in rebellion to God and have been set loose from the authority of church and scripture, then they are going to invent ways to explain their existence, such as evolution. Uh, They're going to come up with ways to explain uh, morality and law and government in ways that have nothing whatsoever to do with scripture. So we, the sin nature will create these uh, worldly ways of thinking, and then that in turn incites our sin nature and entices our sin nature. And it really, I shouldn't have a, a line there with arrows going back and forth. It should just be a vicious circle because one supports the other and then comes back and supports the first. Under point seven, since God is truth and light, and in him there is no darkness, the opposite is true of Satan, who is the father of lies. And in 2 Corinthians 12, it says that he appears as an angel of light. He is the great counterfeiter. He appears as the angel of light and a minister of righteousness. Uh, Even the religious leaders of Israel are said by Jesus to be of their father, the devil. He really liked to win friends and influence people. He told the Pharisees in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. That's a strong statement. It's not that they've just accidentally gotten into it. It says "You, you want to do it. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. That's an absolute statement. It's, it's not partially true. There's no truth whatsoever in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Point number eight, those who represent the world system That is, religious leaders, everyone from the current Archbishop of Canterbury to the Pope to the whoever is the uh, head of uh, the Buddhists, whoever on all of the Ayatollahs in Islam, all of these various political leaders, philosophers, those who are teaching in most of the secular schools, I would say the vast majority of them are teaching uh, Satan's lies. They are teaching philosophies and frameworks that are straight out of the pit of hell. And so we have to really prepare our children to think biblically and to be able to spot these lies and these deceptions. It's so much worse now than it was 40 years ago. And 40 years ago, it was pretty bad. 
Ninth, the solution for all of this is the spiritual life. It's growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, first of all, trusting in Christ as our Savior, that he died for us on the cross. And then second, we are to grow and mature in the word. In John sixteen thirty three, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, stability, calmness, lack of worry, lack of anxiety. You may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And he said that before he went to the cross. So he had already overcome the world before he went to the cross. And of course, Romans 12, 2, which we've already discussed, that we're not to be conformed to the world. Tenth, the cosmic system values power. It values self-sufficiency as opposed to God-dependency. It values self-assertion and self-promotion. Divine viewpoint values the power of God, the will of God, and the protection of God. It values genuine humility, replacing self-protection with dependency upon God. So our verse says, when they speak great swelling or attractive words, bombastic words, arrogant words, the language there has various shades of meaning, They're empty words. There's no value to them. They may seem attractive. They may seem uh, helpful, but they are not. Uh, It is through debauchery that the ones who have, uh, that they attract or tempt the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So these are talking about believers who get sucked in by the false teaching. And we've had even people in this congregation that have been sucked into the false teaching of the last year. And it is so sad and it is so tragic. And it is happening in other churches, but most of the church and all the pastors are being sucked into it. And in another month, one of the greatest conservative denominations is going to have their uh, annual convention. And it will be explosive because of what happened two years ago when they last met, and they basically were going to uh, institutionalize critical race theory for the denomination. And so just, you know, we have to pray for these things. Everything seems to be falling apart. Verse 19 says, while they, that they refers to the false teachers, while they promise them liberty. See, They're promising them antinomianism, freedom from all restraint. Uh, the The attractiveness in the ancient world, as I pointed out, was that none of these false religions said, thou shalt not. They allowed everything, everything from bestiality to homosexuality. And now we have government that are uh, on the verge of persecuting pastors and churches that just stand for the word of God or even read from the passages of scripture that identify these things as sins. So it's coming our way eventually. Now, I, I have a feeling that it won't come fast. It might. I might be wrong. But the places where everybody cites in Canada and in Great Britain are places that are a hundred years ahead of us 
they threw out the Bible from their churches over a hundred years ago. And so there's been a much stronger biblical base here in this country. I don't think it's going to take a hundred years before we shift, but it's not going to happen next week. We have too many believers and leaders in this country that are doing all they can. We need to pray for these organizations uh, like Liberty Legal and uh, some of the um, uh, family associations that are uh, grounded in Scripture and are taking groups to court in order, order to defend our constitutional rights. Well, they promised them liberty. They themselves, see, it's not real liberty. They themselves are slaves to corruption. It's, it's just a sucker deal. You, you, you know, we're going to give, you're going to have liberty. You're going to be able to do whatever you want to. But what it is, is they become slaves to every lust pattern in their sin nature. And that's what it is. Uh, slaves of corruption for by whom a person is overcome by him also he is brought into bondage. Now I'm going to close in just a minute. I just want to hit these verses. Slaves bondage. What other passages in Scripture use that same terminology? You have it in in, uh, John 8, and you have it in Romans chapter 6. Verse 20 says, For if after they have escaped, there's our word again, the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, this is the word epinosis, which seems to suggest that this group that escaped are are believers, but then they have a massive spiritual blowout on the Autobahn. And so they they wreck their spiritual life. They don't lose their salvation. They just wreck it. After they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. And so that is, that is serious. They're defeated. It's a, it's a word for defeat. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. That doesn't mean that they lose their salvation. It's just that they get enmeshed in this sin, and it's more destructive to their life than ever. Uh, they don't lose their salvation. We'll get into the details of this uh, afterward. But the word there, uh, they become slaves of depravity. And that is exactly what we're warned against in Romans chapter 6. So we'll stop here. And then next time we'll come back and look at how this stacks up with other key passages in Scripture. Jesus to the Pharisees in John 8 and Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 6. Father, we're thankful that we have your word. It is not complimentary to us. And it warns us about our own sin natures and how active they are and destructive they are and the importance that by God, by your grace, by the Holy Spirit, and by the Word of God, that we keep things under control and that we not be deceived by the enticements of the world system, but that we keep ourselves focused on your Word, reading your Word, memorizing your Word, applying your Word, learning to live primarily for you and not for us, for that is the goal of this Christian life. We pray that you would help us to understand and implement this. In Christ's name, amen.